on the level. And uh, I did get the title up, but we're not going to have all the scriptures up because of the internet issue. So you'll want to have your Bibles open and ready because you're not going to get to cheat by looking at the screen this morning. But that might be good for us, right, to look up in our own Bibles where the scriptures are. But it also means I have to slow down a little bit because when I know they're on the screen, I don't always pause to let you look them up. So we'll have to do that. But this is recap really quick where we're at as we've been going through the book of Luke. And just in the past chapter here, uh, Luke chapter 6, we're still early in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, chapter 6 has some recounting of healings and the appointing of the apostles. And now we're going to see one of Luke's first recordings of a sermon. Uh, so as we look at this, uh, I've named the sermon the Sermon on the Level, or as it says up there, a tough sermon on the level. See, that shows when I do it really quickly. Uh, <laughs> I, I did that while you were singing to try to get it up there in time. But uh, anyway, we'll have to live with that. So um, it may still be able to be edited up there. <laughs> But uh, some, uh, some similarities are between this and the Sermon on the Mount, but they're not exactly the same. Um, Jesus probably taught many of these truths more than once. Uh, repetition is a key to learning. Uh, anyone who's involved in education would tell you that. You repeat things over and over. Um, and the preaching of the t- and teaching of the Bible must also be repeated. And also reread when you do reading plans. That's why we keep reading through the Bible. Um, I, I read through the Bible uh, constantly, and I need to keep rereading it um, because that's how we learn. As we need to be uh, in things and repeating them. So we must never say that uh, we've learned whatever we need to know in and a certain area or in the teaching of Scripture. Uh, we. If you're any kind of a professional in most careers, people have what's called continuing education. Um, and, and if you're a real estate agent, you're probably required to do certain classes every year to show that you're staying up on the laws and the rules and the ethics and all of that. My dad was a, an insurance agent, and they had continuing education. They had to fill out forms every year to show they did this many hours of continuing education. It's true for many fields. And those of you who have had great medical care, I, I can tell you probably if your medical care was good, it's because you have a doctor that keeps learning. Um, would you rather have a doctor with 30 years of experience that hasn't cracked a medical textbook or a, even read an article on his field for 30 years? Or would you have someone that has kept up with their continuing education? I can tell you I'd rather have someone who does a lot of reading and a lot of studying Um, And so if we take our faith seriously, we need to do the same. We need to repeat things. And so it's very, very likely that uh, Jesus, as he was going around teaching, taught many of these things uh, often, uh, not only to his disciples, but to the other people that would sometimes gather around to hear him teach as well. So our big idea this morning is that our current spiritual condition has much to do with our eternal condition. Our current spiritual condition has much to do with our eternal condition. And Jesus, in our passage this morning, taught that we may need a new view of wealth and poverty, 
when we're hungry or full, and what popularity means. So we're going to look at all of those. Um, so we're going to begin actually at verse 17 to get down to where we're at in verse 20. Uh, it says, He came down with them and stood on a level place, and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. All right, so we'll go back to where I started here for a moment. Verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So I mentioned a moment ago, this, uh, there's a lot of comparisons that have been drawn to this uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Matthew's chapter, chapters 5 through 7, uh, one of the most famous teachings of Jesus. Um, many uh, Bible school students or seminary students have been required to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's well known to many, um, many in the church and uh, well loved by many. And in the Sermon on the Mount, there's also what's called Beatitudes, which Beatitude just means blessings uh, that Jesus pronounces on certain groups of people. And here in Luke, we have a shorter version that doesn't have the, all of them that Matthew has. Now, some people have tried to say this is the same teaching, the same time as what Matthew is recording. Uh, and so in order to make those work together, because you would say, well, how come one's the Sermon on the Mount and one's the Sermon on the Plain then? Uh, because one says he was in the mountains, one said he was on level ground. Um, and so those people who have tried to make these be one and the same said, well, you can have a mountain with a flat place. And that's true. But um, there, there are similarities in the teachings. Um, but my conclusion is that these would be two different teaching events. That's my opinion anyway. Um, but uh, it could be that he was both in the mountains and found a level place there. Um, Matthew 5.1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so I think this is a different time than, than the Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at here in Luke this morning. As mentioned earlier, 
Jesus likely taught the same principles on many different occasions, just as a preacher today may preach similar sermons if he's preaching to different crowds. I'll give you an example of this. Um, uh, in, uh, there's a man that just passed away recently named Harry Reader. And if you go to YouTube and listen to his sermons, I guarantee you'll be blessed. He's a, he was an excellent preacher. He died in a car accident a few months back. But he spoke at Ligonier. Leland went to hear him at Ligonier. And then shortly after, a few weeks later, he was down in Fort Lauderdale. There was a thing called Kingdom Come Conference down there. And Leland and I and the girls went. And uh, Harry Reader spoke there. And a lot of his sermon was overlap. It wasn't exactly the same, but there were some similar concepts from then that uh, came out in, this, in the other sermon. And that's very true for these guys that go and travel a lot and they're speaking to different crowds, there are certain themes that they're going to always be repeating. That doesn't mean that they're cheating and not doing their work to come up with a brand new sermon every time. It just makes sense that there's certain truths that are worth repeating, right? So Jesus did the same thing, and, uh, and I believe he taught probably these, not just in the occasions recorded in the Gospels, but probably in many other occasions as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew, it begins by saying, he opened his mouth. And in the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Level, uh, depending on your translation, it says he lifted up his eyes to the disciples or on his disciples. My initial reaction to this is that he may have had his head bowed and then he lifted his head and began to teach. And so in doing that, I think Jesus set an example for all who would teach or preach his word that all should come humbly, relying on prayer and guidance from God as we teach. I mentioned a bit ago, beatitude basically just means blessing. Um, you've, some of you might have memorized at one point the beatitudes of this, from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and in these particular three beatitudes, or three verses, there's an immediate correlation right afterwards. There's a correspondence with three woes, uh, three verses of woes. And so if you have your Bible open, and I recommend you do so you can be keep referring, and just stay in Luke chapter 6 because we're going to mostly be referring to that, uh, you can see this correspondence. So in verse 20, it says, Blessed are you who are poor. In verse 24, it says, Woe to you who are rich. In verse 21, it says, blessed you are you who are hungry. And in verse 25, it says, woe to you who are full. In verse 22, it says, blessed are you when people hate you. In verse 26, uh, it says, woe to you when people speak well of you. So as we go through these, I decided instead of looking at all the Beatitudes first and then the woes, I want to look at them in their pairings. Uh, they're written that way very specifically for a reason. There is supposed to be a thinking about and a contrast what does it mean that they're put two things against each other in a sense and so we'll look at them as a pair so first we're going to look at the pair of verse 20 and verse 24 verse 20 says he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god and then in verse 24 he said but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. And Matthew, uh, in his similar list of Beatitudes, he adds just from the poor, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
And so we need to try to understand here, what is Jesus talking about? Because in Matthew, it seems like he's talking about poor in spirit. That's a spiritual condition. And in Luke, it's just poor. So I, I think that Jesus is actually talking about actual poverty and wealth. But at the same time, it's poverty and wealth is often used as a, a metaphor in Scripture for spiritual poverty and spiritual wealth. So I want to make uh, several observations from here that I think are important for us to keep in mind. Because a lot of times people come to passages like this and maybe they know someone who's poor that they don't like and they think, yeah, that's not right. Or they think they know someone that's rich that they don't like and they think, ah, yeah, yeah, you see, woe to you. You know, and we got to be careful with that. We want to look at this properly so first of all, I want to point out there's no inherent virtue in this scripture to, say, to being poor or rich. And there, in other words, being poor is not automatically a virtue. Being rich is not automatically a virtue. There's also no inherent evil in being either poor or rich. So it's not necessarily that all poor people are evil or all rich people are evil. Okay? We need to understand that. We're not here to blanket entire groups of people uh, in one way or the other here. Um, people can be poor or rich because they did evil, right? Laziness could make someone poor, right? Um, or they were, um, you know, thieves and they got put in prison. Where do you, what, how do you end up economically if you're in prison, right? So laziness can make one poor. Crime can make one poor. But on the flip side of that, deception or oppression could make someone rich as well. So both people, poor or rich, might be in that condition because they did evil. But they could also possibly be in that condition because they did good. Someone might be poor because they would not compromise their morals to make money. And maybe in their local economy, the only way they could get rich would be to be dishonest. And they decided, I'm not going to be dishonest. And so they remain poor but honest. That's possible. And someone might be rich for very good reasons. They might be rich because they're gifted with abilities. Um, and they made their money honestly while at the same time improving the lives of others. So we cannot always be sure that someone is poor or rich because they're good or bad. I hope that's clear now. We, we can't just say, oh, you're rich, you're evil. Or you're poor, you're evil. Or you're poor, you must be really good. Um, we don't want to ever do that. We don't want to judge people that way. Uh, and some people will suffer for being righteous. And some people will grow wealthy in their evil. Scripture tells us about both types of people. Common lament in the Psalms, right? Why do the wicked prosper? See that a lot in Scripture. People crying out to God and asking that question. Why do the wicked prosper? It doesn't seem to make sense. Why They're not ever getting their comeuppance, so to speak. So uh, so as we look at this passage together, let's keep in mind this as well. These things are addressed to who? As Jesus is saying them. Remember, context is important. In fact, context is what? King, King right? So, so who is he addressing this to? If you go back to verse 40, he's addressing this to disciples. Now, we know that among any group of disciples, there could be people who aren't really fully on board and 
in that, but generally speaking, he's speaking to people who are his followers. So these are not universal truths. We cannot say all people will have the kingdom of God. And we cannot also say that all the rich will suffer. These are more like Proverbs. They are generalities of life, okay? So it's kind of like when you're reading Proverbs. You have to be careful when it says, if you raise your child up in the way they should go, they will never depart from it. Does that mean that every Christian parent that ever brings their kid through the faith and does a great job at home, their kid will never stray? No, it's a general principle. And so these are general principles as well. Um. Kent Hughes uh, said in his uh, commentary on Luke, it's called That You May Know the Truth. Uh, He said this, Nevertheless, there were blessed poor in Old Testament times. After the fall of the nation, when God's people were carried into exile in Babylon, they were the dispossessed, exiled poor. Of course, not all of the exiles remained poor in Babylon. Some managed to do very well for themselves, but only by compromising. Those who sold out to Babylonian culture, who adopted their way of life, were able to become quite wealthy. And when it came time to return to build the fallen walls, they did not want to go, whereas the uncompromised poor did. So, in other words, he's saying, you know, when when a lot of Israelites got exiled into Babylon, they're in a country. Remember Daniel? He, he stayed strong in his faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all them. Um, but a lot of people abandoned their, their service of the one true God to adapt that culture so that they could get rich. Well, then when the opportunity came back to go back to Jerusalem, they didn't want to go. Like, I'm making it pretty well here. I'm, I'm a high status here. Why would I want to go back and do that hard work of building those walls? And then he continues and he says, this brings us back to the most prominent Old Testament quotation thus far in Luke's gospel, Isaiah 61, with which Jesus began his public ministry. Its opening line reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Uh, The poor in Isaiah 61 were the exiled people of Israel who had not compromised with their pagan conquerors. They knew that they could not deliver themselves. They longed for the Messiah and his salvation. This brings us back to the most prominent Old Testament quotation thus far in Luke's gospel. Oh, I just read that, sorry. Um, and, uh, and we go to see, we, read, we, we went through Luke chapter 4 way back when, and that's when Jesus read that scroll and said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Uh, so, as Jesus is teaching this, he's already fulfilling that prophecy, right? So, so we got the, the blessedness or the beatitude, uh, blessed to the poor and the woe to the rich. Now we move on to verse, uh, verses 21, which is correlated with verse 25, uh, which says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The corollary to that is, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So there's some common themes in Scripture that we see again and again. And one of those common themes is about spiritual hunger or spiritual thirst. Um, Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for a flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts 
for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Um, the, the hunger and thirst theme throughout Scripture is, is very clear and often used as a metaphor for spiritual condition. God demonstrated his care and provision for the hungry when he fed his people in the wilderness. What was that called that came down to the ground for them? Manna, right? Um, he showed it again when he fed his prophet Elijah. Remember, Elijah was uh, all despairing. And what did he need? He needed a snack and a nap. And uh, God gave him rest and he brought food to him. Uh, then Hagar and Ishmael, I don't know if you remember that story. It's maybe not one we don't talk about all that much. But Hagar was the one who, um, when Abraham didn't trust God, and he said, I've got to make a child with Hagar, which was his wife's servant. And Ishmael, well, then, uh, then jealousy happened, and they got sent out, and they were in the wilderness of Paran. And she cried out, and God took care of their need there. So over and over, and there's many other examples in Scripture where God shows his kindness towards the suffering who are hungry or thirsty. And then uh, Jesus said, those who are full now will be hungry. This could be both literal hunger and spiritual hunger. For even in the church of those days were those who were wealthy, and some of them may have had too much confidence in their wealth. And for those who were wealthy during times of persecution, their wealth did not spare them from it. There were many wealthy Christians who died in the Colosseum side by side with the poor. So wealth didn't protect necessarily from affliction. The point is that your temporary physical situation can change either for good or bad. But those truly in Christ will endure to the end. Jesus told the woman at the well that he was the permanent drink that satisfies. He told the multitude that he is the bread of life. And again and again we see these metaphors used. And not only that, did Jesus himself demonstrated in the miracles of the fish and the loaves that he is one that can, can take care of true hunger needs as well as spiritual hunger and then we talk about the, we're going to talk a little bit about the weeping and laughing. Because this seems to confuse some people. What does he mean? Like laughing is bad or something? That's not what Jesus said at all. Jesus, uh, I think, was full of joy and had a sense of humor. Um, but here we seem to be looking at the type of weeping that is right. There's a type of weeping that's right and there's a type of laughing that's right. Weeping over sin and weeping over how debased the world has become is proper for the one who loves the good. We weep for our own sin and we weep when we see a world that's in defiance of the holy God. So this is not a prohibition on laughing by any means. The church should be a joyful place. Uh, it should be a place where we can have great laughter together because what, 
who, who better should laugh than people who have been saved by Christ, right? So, so this is in no way a prohibition on laughing. But we want to weep for the right reasons, and we want to laugh for the right reason. And some people laugh at the things of God, and I think that's partly what he's talking about here. Or they laugh at those who are trying to be righteous. And, and those who laugh at people who are trying to be righteous, I've seen this my whole life. You can get mocked for just trying to be a person who follows the rules. And, uh, and so there's people that laugh at that, but in the end they will weep and mourn when they realize the truth and it's too late. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the Bible teaches us. And so there's a switching of circumstances here. Those who um, laugh and weep for the right reasons will have that laughter and weeping switched around for them. And those who uh, mock or laugh for the wrong reasons will be the ones weeping in the end. A Christian can and should weep over the sin in their own lives and the rebellion of the world against our holy God. And at the same time as that weeping is happening, we can have the joy of salvation and peace. Well, how does that make any sense, right? Some people will say, how can you do that? How do you have the joy of the Lord while you're weeping over your sin? Because if you're weeping over your sin, you will experience what the Bible promises in 1 John 1, 8 and 9 where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. While we're weeping over our sins, he replaces our mourning with joy. And so we can do that. The key to that is knowing and trusting in the promises of God. We can have the joy in the midst of the deepest sorrows of life, but we need to know God's word if we're to trust God's word, right? How do you trust something you don't know? And how do you know something? You have to read. You have to reflect on it. You have to have conversations about it with others. You have to listen to teaching and preaching. I love it when I get to have conversations about what the Bible is teaching us, whether it's with our kids at home or whether it's in Bible studies or D6 or any of those places. It's just a delight. Um, and as we do those things, we get to know God's word better. And as we hear others encourage us and tell us their testimonies, we learn to trust it better. And James has a warning in James chapter 4. If you do want to look that up, I remember now that it's not on the screen. So if you want to look up James chapter 4, starting at verse 10, 7 and through verse 10, um, James has got a section here where he's talking about the temptation people have towards worldliness and he says in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, James is using the same concept here. There's a proper time to mourn and weep. And when you come to the conclusion that I've been living in a sinful way, the mourning and weeping is appropriate then. You shouldn't be laughing when you've got unconfessed sins. But you should mourn and weep over those sins. And as that happens, the joy comes back. So the proper time 
when we need to be purified, we need to mourn and weep. When we mourn and weep over our own sinfulness, that's the type of weeping that will be turned into joy and laughter. And for only with repentance can forgiveness come. And the forgiveness God gives us releases our burden of sin so that we cannot help but be filled with joy. As I, every time I say the burden of sin, I can't help but think of one of my favorite books, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which other than the Bible is probably the book I'd recommend most for the believer to read. But there's that moment when he comes to the cross and this great burden is on his back. It represents the sin that he has and, and the burden is finally taken off his back and it tumbles down the hill and it goes into the sepulcher which represents the tomb of Jesus. The, the, the load is off and what does he do? do? He sings a song of praise. And so when God re- gives us that release from our burden of sin, we will be filled with joy. Back to Luke chapter 6 again. The last beatitude, the last blessing and woe is uh, from verse 22 and 23. First, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And the corollary to that is verse 26 that says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The blessing is when people hate you, exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So that's important to keep in mind. It's not just generically, if people hate you, you should be blessed. No, if they hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So there's no blessing for being hated because you're a jerk. All right? We're to have a a good reputation with outsiders um, as much as it is possible. However, universal acceptance in this world can only come with compromise and inconsistency. Anyone who is universally loved, which I don't know that there actually is anyone who's universally loved, usually will be full of some kind of compromise. You go to this crowd and you say what they like to hear. You go to that crowd and say what they like to hear. There's no consistency in the message. And I have a quote here from the uh, introduction and commentary of Luke. Uh, The next unexpected blessing is for the persecuted. It's not for suffering in general of of which Jesus speaks, but suffering on account of the Son of Man. Those who suffer in this way are not to be pitied. They are blessed. Jesus tells them to rejoice and to leap for joy. They have an eternal reward, and they are in a godly succession. The prophets were treated in the same way. God's people can expect nothing less. Jesus promised his followers that they would be absurdly happy but also that they would never be out of trouble. So if someone hates you because of your faith and service to Christ, rejoice! It's easier said than done, isn't it? But he doesn't just say bear with it. 
He doesn't say, when people hate and exclude and revile and spurn, with, spurn you, just bear with it. No, he says, rejoice. Leap for joy. Which leaping is easier for some than others. Some of us have more gravity working against us. But, but why would you do that? Why would you leap and joy, for joy and, and rejoice? Because this is a down payment on your reward in heaven. In heaven, those who suffer the most for Christ have a greater reward. The woe that goes with this is Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And again, from the commentary, it says, This is a danger when all men speak well of you, for this can scarcely happen apart from some sacrifice of principle. There is, it is true, a, true, a sense in which being well thought of by outsiders is important, but that is different from universal popularity. It is the false prophets who win wide acclaim. A true prophet is too uncomfortable to be prop popular. And we can see that if you go to Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. It says this, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? Well, what were the prophets prophesying falsely? They were saying, peace, peace. They were telling everybody, hey, things are going to get better. Things are looking up. Peace, peace. We're not going to have any more war. The one true prophet, Jeremiah, was telling them, you're about to get exiled. This is going to be life, rough life for you ahead. And who would they rather listen to? They'd rather listen to the false prophets because they say, peace, peace. So they said, peace, peace, and the result was that people loved them. And who did they hate? Jeremiah, the true prophet of God. It's a universal principle that if you live a principled life, there will be those who hate you. It is also a universal principle that if you are universally liked, you have no principles. I'm going to say those again. It is a universal principle that if you live a principled life, there will be those who hate you. And it is also a universal principle that if you are universally liked, you have no principles. R.C. Sproul said this in, in uh, his book, A Walk with God. Christ continues his pronunciation of the oracle of doom. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Sproul says, isn't this a strange statement of Jesus, that the curse of God hangs over those people who are too popular for their own good? This passage is on a collision course with the values of our culture which teach us to seek popularity. There's nothing wrong in having people like us. There's nothing wrong in having a good reputation. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 18 says that we ought to be at peace with all men as much as it is in our power that we ought to have a good reputation. However, if everybody speaks well of you, watch out. In a sinful world, there is only one way for all people to speak well of you, and that is if you are hypocritical, if you are compromising in your ethic, if you are taking a changing posture to suit the desires of those with whom you come in contact. 
A person of integrity and righteousness, on the other hand, is bound to alienate some in this world. Christ was the only perfect human being who ever lived, and yet he was hated by many of his contemporaries. Jesus finishes this statement of woe by reminding his hearers that this is exactly what happened to the false prophets of Israel. The true prophets were objects of hatred. Their message of repentance and holiness was scorned and resented, whereas the preaching of the false prophets were welcomed, for they told the people exactly what they wanted to hear. So watch out if everybody speaks well of you. End quote. Sproul still speaks to us, doesn't he? So as I conclude here, some thoughts for us to think about. Uh, what, are, what is the point of these blessings and woes? Well, the overarching point is Jesus wants us to be kingdom-minded. Um, we just were talking in D6 this morning about the end of the book, the, the last two chapters of Revelation, which give us a picture of what is the hope for the believer. Jesus wants us to be kingdom-minded. He wants us thinking about his kingdom. He wants us to look ahead to the eternal future, not just our temporary situations. Not that we ignore our situation we're in and do the best we can, but he wants us to be kingdom-minded. Um, as a reminder, we went through earlier that the poverty or riches that someone may have are not an indication necessarily of their spiritual state. However, how these things are thought of by them can be. You know, I've, I've met people on both ends of that spectrum that are way too proud of their situation. I've met some poor people who are stubbornly proud of their poverty as though it's some great virtue. They feel they, they have earned some extra credit because of their poverty. And then there are some poor who are exceedingly rich in the kingdom of God. And the rich in the world are, are cautioned. They need not depend on their riches too heavily. And they should give glory to God for his provision. Anything they have is from him. Even the talent that they use to get the riches that they've had are gifts from God. And they need to give glory to God for that. And they should be generous back to God as he has been generous to them. That's the same for poor and rich. And they should be careful to make sure their wealth comes from righteous activity, not fraud or oppression, because those are things that the Bible condemns very greatly. Um, this, the hungry will be satisfied in Christ, the spiritually hungry especially. Um, and the ones who are full will experience hunger. That can mean that uh, those who feel that everything's well right now, they, they're probably going to go through some time in their life where things are suddenly not as well as they'd hoped. Those who weep for the things that grieve God will have laughter. So, so if you're going to weep, weep for the things that grieve God, starting with ourselves and what's going on in here. And those who laugh at the things of God will weep. Those who mock righteousness and mock the people who are trying to live out the Christian life, and sometimes that's even inside the church, sadly, um, they're going to end up weeping in the end. Those who are persecuted on account of the Son of Man should rejoice, leap for joy, knowing their reward is great. That's the great promise we have. And those who are loved by everybody may need to examine themselves. Being universally loved is usually a sign of compromised 
values. So as we take a look at all these, we have to examine ourselves in light of them. It's very easy to take a passage like this and then try to think of all the people you ought to apply it to, but number one, we need to apply it to ourselves and consider whether we're in any of those categories of need. And we need to all be kingdom-minded and thinking about how Christ would look at our lives and how our lives are going to be ended soon enough and our eternal life is the most important. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And as we examine it together again, I pray that you've taught us something to learn this morning, something that we can apply in our lives. Lord, if, if you're bringing conviction to us, may we respond to that in weeping for our sin. If you're bringing encouragement to us, may we respond to that in joy. But ultimately, Lord, I just